0: Good evening. This is Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Vicki Aydin is off, is off this evening. Here are tonight's headlines. The first hearing of legislation to allow medical use of marijuana will be held after years of GOP stonewalling. Two similar bills on medical marijuana have been proffered by Democrats and for the first time Republicans. The GOP bill, which will be the only one discussed, would allow health care providers to prescribe cannabis oils, liquids, and pills to patients with debilitating conditions. The Democratic bill would also allow the smoking of cannabis. Despite support for the Republican proposal from the Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Governor Tony Evers, observers note that bills face very strong, uh, very long odds in the Senate, where it is opposed by most members of the GOP. The federal government will provide $600,000 to Wisconsin cities to test their drinking water for PFAS chemicals. This announcement comes on the same day that the city of Wausau disclosed that all six of its wells have PFAS contamination that is above the recommended level established by the State Department of Natural Resources. Governor Evers previously had proposed funding for testing drinking water last year as part of his biennial budget. The legislature removed that funding from the budget bill. It has also refused to hear bills intended to identify and treat PFAS contaminated water. To date, the vast majority of cities have not tested their wells for PFAS. And just as a reminder, all but one of Madison's wells are below the proposed DNR standard. The DNR board will vote on establishing an official threshold level on February 23rd. Amazon appears to be continuing its march through Wisconsin. Last week, we reported that the corporate behemoth had purchased land in Cottage Grove for a 3.5, million, a 3.5 million square foot facility. That's about 12 times the size of an average woodman's supermarket. Today, the Associated Press reports that Amazon's Kenosha warehouse will expand by another million square feet. Those sites are in addition to the two and a half million square feet Amazon already occupies at their Oak Creek facility. And just as a correction, WORT would like to acknowledge something that we reported earlier. The proposed facility in Cottage Grove would be 3.4 million square feet, not 93 feet, as we reported on Monday. In an unusual turnabout, students at East High School will lead an educational effort on sexual violence that will be directed at teachers and staff. The program follows a series of student walkouts at East High last fall in response to the alleged sexual assault of a student in an off-campus incident. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that a work group of students, educators, and staff from the Rape Crisis Center developed a training, which will be implemented at a professional development conference. The student-led workshop on recognizing and reporting sexual violence is another element of that effort. Gordon Allen, a senior at East and a student Senate president, said, quote, They've been meeting our demands. It's been a process. The Capital Times reports that the Urban League of Greater Madison will expand its truck driver training program and launch a new academy to train solar installers. The goal? To train at least 100 adults who will be job-ready in the field over the next two years. A spokesperson for the program said the organization chose to focus on jobs of the future. These are careers which pay well enough, quote, for a family to have a good life. The median wage for solar installers in the U.S. is about $22 per hour, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Delivery drivers make about $16.50 an hour on average, and semi-drivers make about $23. The two programs will be paid for in part by a $250,000 grant from Madison nonprofit Ascendium Education Group. Those are the headlines for today. Now onto to the rest of today's top stories. A new bill working its way through Wisconsin's legislature would give Republican-controlled committees extensive control over election administration. A move opponents say would give the GOP an outsized role in coordinating a nonpartisan process. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
1: Wisconsin's Republican lawmakers are backing a series of bills to set new election administration policies, one of which would give a Republican-controlled committee oversight of election funds. The measure would require any plans for federal election money to get approval from the legislature's Finance Committee. Currently, the Wisconsin Elections Commission allocates those funds based on federal guidance. Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue, a Republican from Oostburg and the bill's lead sponsor, says the bill would ensure the state maintains control of election administration.
2: SB 941 ensures the people of Wisconsin, through their elected representatives, can review, amend, or block any efforts by the executive branch of the federal government to interfere with Wisconsin
3: elections administration.
1: But the bill is opposed by Democrats and several voting rights groups who argue it would give Republicans too much control over elections. It would likely be vetoed by Democratic Governor Tony Evers, but the proposal indicates the direction GOP lawmakers could take should Evers lose his re-election bid this November. The bill also would require state agencies to submit new federal election guidance to legislative leadership and would bar those agencies from implementing the policies until they received the go-ahead from a legislative rules committee. Matt Rothschild with the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign questioned the legality of the bill in a committee hearing Monday.
4: States aren't uh, generally allowed to disregard federal guidance on the conduct of federal elections, for instance. And if you want to have one rule for federal elections and one rule for state elections, that's going to create a whole bunch of cumbersomeness for the clerks.
1: A separate measure would bar private funding for election administration. That resolution is in response to grants provided to Wisconsin's largest cities, including liberal strongholds Milwaukee and Madison, by the Center for Tech and Civic Life in 2020. One of the center's major funders is Mark Zuckerberg, although the organization is unrelated to Facebook. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Today, there were
0: more developments in the shooting of Quadron Wilson, a black man shot by law enforcement in Madison last Thursday. This afternoon, the family held a press conference to demand more answers from officials. Our producer, Nate helped was there. <laughs>
2: Medical gloves and blue coolant still sat in the intersection of East Park Boulevard and American Parkway where police shot Quadron Wilson one week ago. It's also where protesters and Wilson's family gathered today to demand answers. Last Thursday, police surrounded Wilson's car in the intersection and reportedly shot anywhere from 5 to 20 bullets into the vehicle. Five shots hit Wilson in the back. Street camera footage obtained by the Wisconsin State Journal shows the events that took place immediately following the shooting, where Wilson can be seen being taken out of the bullet-ridden car around 15 minutes after the shooting had taken place. Events from the video follow what Wilson had told family members about the shooting. After the shooting took place, Wilson was brought to an area hospital to be treated and undergo surgery to remove bullets. But over the weekend, Wilson was removed from that hospital and brought to the day in County Jail. Main Morris, Quadron's brother, spoke at a press conference earlier today. He says that while Quadron's mother has spoken with him, communication is still limited.
5: My mom speaks to him daily now. He calls my mom, but he only can stand on the phone for two or three minutes because he's in pain and he can't stand up. The bandages are bloody. They're they He said they're not changing them. They have him in some type of segregated unit. He's not being treated right. He's being treated like a, worse than an animal.
2: Wilson is a relative of Tony Robinson, the 19-year-old shot and killed by Madison police in 2015. As family and protesters held their press conference today, officials remained silent on almost all information regarding the shooting. As of broadcast, the Dane County Sheriff's Department, who is leading the investigation into the shooting, has only released Quadron's name and no information on why the incident occurred. The Madison Police Department has issued a statement that their officers were not involved in the shooting, though a spokesperson says officers were present to assist the Wisconsin Department of Justice's Division of Criminal Investigation. Today's press conference, which was held in the intersection where police shot Wilson, was both a call for answers from law enforcement as well as a call to move Wilson back to the hospital. Morris says that conditions at the jail are not suitable to care for Quandron. The
5: pain I see him in now, I've never witnessed. He was literally crying. I couldn't even understand what he was saying on the phone. He's not asking to be released to the community. He's just asking to go back to the hospital for now. That's all he's asking. And that's all we're asking.
2: Another issue brought up at today's press conference was the recently released camera footage. They say that they do not understand why the camera did not record the incident itself and only the aftermath.
5: Yeah, we're not understanding. The camera's right there. I'm the pretty sure they're going to record Hello. everything we're doing. They got in on bullets. The camera seen everything. Why was their footage not on there that's turn. supposed to be they on there. Why
2: was it, it Steve Eisenberg, Wilson's attorney, says that he was not able to speak with Wilson until just a few days ago.
5: Finally, I
6: was able to see him Monday after trying to find him since Friday. It took me three days to locate him. Well, I knew where he was. He was in the hospital under a John Doe, which didn't allow me to have any access to him. I couldn't find him. Had to go through channels through the police to try and locate him and then found out he was being discharged Sunday night from the hospital and then I located him in the jail on Monday.
2: Eisenberg says that Wilson is currently in stable condition and has been told that the jail will move him to a hospital if his condition deteriorates. Both the family and Eisenberg say that the worst part of the incident is the lack of information. Eisenberg says that he's still trying to find out why the
6: incident took place in the first place. Scheduled CSPO on Wednesday, the day before the shooting, scheduled to go into his probation officer. Okay, and he had a GPS on. Everybody knows where he's been for the last seven months, and so he's scheduled to go see his PO on Wednesday. On Tuesday, the PO calls and changes the appointment till Friday, and he's going in there on Friday. And he's supposed to be getting a pass from his PO to go for Valentine's Day with his girlfriend to uh, Illinois, to Chicago. You need a pass to, you need permission to leave the state when you're on supervision. So they knew he was coming in on Friday. I don't know why in the world this happened on Thursday. Everybody knew he was coming the next day.
2: The Dan County Sheriff Department did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate wuggie
0: The time is now 6.18 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, GOP legislators held a hearing on a bill that would constitute an extreme ban on abortion. Much like the Texas law passed last year, the bill would criminalize providing an abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy. For more on the proposed legislation and the future of a woman's right to choose in Wisconsin, WORT reporter Layla Ma spoke with Mike Murray, the executive director of the Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin.
7: I'm on the line with Mike Murray, executive director of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin. We're talking about the advancement of bill in the state legislature that would ban abortion after 6 weeks. Mike, thank you for talking with me today.
8: Thanks so much for having me.
7: Starting things off, can you tell us about this bill? What would this bill do?
8: Yeah, so basically what this bill would do is that it would ban almost all abortions in Wisconsin. Um, it would allow private citizens to sue individuals that provide abortion care to patients, uh, and it would it would award those citizens who successfully sue an abortion provider uh, with minimum of $10,000 for each lawsuit that they file. This sort of legislation was actually passed, fortunately, went into effect in Texas. And a lot of folks have probably heard about it. Uh, it's been referred to as Senate Bill 8 or SB 8 in Texas. And the impact of that law in Texas has been to virtually ban almost all abortions in Texas, which has required women and other individuals who can become pregnant to either be forced to carry pregnancies against their will or to access abortion care in other states at a great personal cost and time.
7: Mm-hmm. There was a public hearing on this bill yesterday in the state legislature. Can you tell me about that? Were more people there speaking for or against the bill?
8: You know I, I don't actually I, I don't have a probably an exactly accurate tally of the of who is speaking for or who is speaking against but in general in when there has, when there have been similar proposals to, to this legislation proposed in the past. The vast majority of organizations and individuals that that speak out about legislation like this are not in favor of it. There's usually a few a few organizations that show up and and support legislation like that. I mean, they're usually the same three or four organizations that are always supporting uh, restrictions on abortion access or other restrictions on reproductive health care. Uh, the vast majority of other organizations and individuals once are usually advocating for policies that would actually expand access to care and not, not reduce access to
9: care.
7: So it's very common to not know you're pregnant by six weeks. That's the main issue with the Texas abortion ban. Tell us more about it.
8: So yeah, most individuals who have, have a menstrual cycle aren't aware that they are this menstrual cycle until for at least four weeks. So that would actually only give, give individuals um, who are pregnant at most two weeks to even learn that they are pregnant, and then to make a decision about uh, whether or not they want to access abortion care, and then to actually be able to make an appointment and access that care, receive the care before um, before the six-week time limit under the legislation kicks in. I, that's why when you know the authors of the legislation may talk about it being a six, six-week abortion ban, that might be technically correct, but in uh, in practicality, a six-week abortion ban is basically nearly a total abortion ban because the vast majority of people who become pregnant will not know they're pregnant in time in order to actually access an abortion uh, before doing so
9: under the bill would be illegal.
7: With the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade in the U.S. Supreme Court, what would this spell mean to people in Wisconsin?
8: Well, so... What this bill would mean in Wisconsin is that I think that I think pretty much everyone agrees, even people that oppose abortion, um, would agree that proposals like this that would ban abortion uh, after six weeks of pregnancy are unconstitutional under Roe v.ersus Wade. It's really concerning that a very similar proposal to this that has been in, in effect in Texas has not been stopped by the U.S. Supreme Court because Roe v.ersus Wade and other similar cases said that. States are not allowed to ban abortions before pregnancy is viable, and viability is usually considered to be around twenty-three or twenty-four weeks of, of pregnancy. So, under Roe versus Wade, a proposal like this should be um, ruled unconstitutional immediately. The fact that the Texas law still stands means means that we that we currently have a U.S. Supreme Court that is almost certainly looking to to either significantly undermine undermine Roe versus Wade or actually even just completely overturn Roe versus Wade. So um, if we were in a situation, you know, right now we're lucky to have Governor Evers as our governor um, who is a champion for reflective care and and would absolutely veto legislation like this or get, were to get to his desk. But if we had a governor who was an opponent of, of reflective care and the current uh, majority in the legislature um, and they passed a bill like this and uh, a uh, 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 hostile governor su- signed this legislation, then, you know, uh, there's, there's a really good chance that it would be allowed to go into effect by the, by the U.S. Supreme Court because the U.S. Supreme Court is, as we speak, uh, hearing a case where we're really concerned that they will either completely overturn or significantly undermine Roe v. Wade.
7: So what is next for this bill? You mentioned before Governor Evers, a Democrat, does not support restricting abortion. Even if this bill was passed by the legislature, he would certainly veto it. So why are legislators considering this bill that has no chance of becoming law right now?
8: Well, I think a lot of these these legislators actually believe in and, and, and support banning abortion. Um, I think we should, I think we should we should take them at their word that that's that's what they want to do and, t- and take that as a very serious threat to to reproductive uh, freedom in this state. And I also think that there are other you know political interests that are driving this as well that are um, ver- very um, uh, powerful political interests within within the uh, Republican Party and conservative movement in this country that are continuing to push the envelope to try and restrict access to reproductive health care and to also um, curry favor with individuals that um, are part of their political base. So there's, I think, both a belief in in the legislature that are supporting this, that this is what they want to do, but also that there are, are political interests that they are, um, are trying to curry favor with. So um, we, we feel... We feel that that even just, you know, continues to highlight the need to have someone like Governor Evers in office who is willing to to stand up against these types of proposals and ensure that they don't become law.
7: Tell us about the timing of this bill, especially given the fall elections coming up this year.
8: Well, I think it's, it's a little bit un, uncertain right now what's going to happen with this bill. It's, it's had a hearing in the Senate. It hasn't had a hearing. I don't think it's even been referred to a, a committee in the Assembly yet, so... We don't know exactly what's going to going to happen with this with this particular piece of legislation. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it gets gets at least a committee vote and, and maybe makes further progress. We're going to have to keep a close eye on it. Um, you know, the other thing that we're keeping a close eye on is the fact that, going back to your previous question, is that you know there's a real a real threat that our U.S. Supreme Court is going to over overrule Roe v. Wade. Uh, in Wisconsin actually has a 172 year old, uh, law that's still on the books here that is a criminal, that creates criminal penalties for anyone that provides abortion care. So there, that would be a, a criminal abortion ban. And there's, there's a very real chance that that won't be going to effect if Roe versus Wade is, is overturned. So, uh, the other thing that we're, that Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin is working really hard on is to advocate for uh, legislators to take action to repeal that criminal abortion ban so that we can make sure that um, access to abortion is protected in Wisconsin regardless of what happens with Roe v.ersus Wade.
7: That's all the time we have today. I have been speaking with Mike Murray, Executive Director of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin. Mike, thank you for talking with me today.
8: Great. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate
0: it. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. We've got a lot more coming at you. We'll hear how a community group helps keep people in their homes in Wisconsin. Young lovers are the source of trouble back in 1960s Madison. And we've got some... Maybe troublesome snow coming at us And we won't be drifting around us exactly But there will be some come tomorrow and the next day I'll tell you all about that And as many details as you can stand to hear In the second half of the show But first we'll take another break And check back in with London To see what's happened in the rest of the world During the past half hour Stay tuned It's now 6.32 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us for the second half of the show. In 2020 and 2021, Congress appropriated more than $40 billion for the Emergency Rental Assistance Program to try to help keep people in their homes. The federal dollars wended their way through the states and into the hands of community action agencies who distribute the funds directly to renters in need. On the Monday 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with two members of the Wisconsin Community Action Program, Executive Director Brad Paul and Housing Program Manager Andy Height, to discuss housing in Wisconsin. So thank you both. So tell us, you
10: know, first off, what happened to housing availability and prices during the pandemic? Did we see with a slowdown in the economy? Did we see a slowdown in housing price escalation as well?
9: I think initially, at least in the rental market, there was not an uh, uh, acceleration of rental rates. And it was a combination of the federal eviction moratorium the uncertainty, and the timing of when it hit. Although simultaneously, the real estate market started soon to be rapid upward spiral, as did the cost of construction materials. So it created an incredibly imperfect storm where right now uh, we are seeing rent increases Significantly higher than the national rate of 10% in cities like Green Bay, it's 20%. The Apartment Association and Appleton reports rent increases of 30%. So, you know, incomes are not keeping pace with the cost to try to keep a roof over
3: your head to add on to that a little bit is i think what's important to understand and Andy laid it out uh, really well there is that what we're looking at is really in some manner a crisis upon a crisis right you know this is we had a prior to the pandemic we had a really serious both availability and affordability problem and so the pandemic has only made that worse and you know just to give you some sense of sort of the overall landscape and again this is this pre-pandemic what i'm talking about it's only gotten worse in some manner is that you have about 130,000 folks in Wisconsin who are dependent on uh, federal rent assistance, about 100,000 in urban areas, about 30,000 in rural, roughly. And then it was public housing, uh, rent subsidies, et cetera. On top of that, you've got about another 300,000 renters who don't receive any federal subsidy or any rent subsidy, and yet they're low income and paying over half their rent on housing. So you take those numbers and you combine those, you put a pandemic on top of that and the job loss and the income loss, you can get a sense as to where we're where we're at right now.
9: Are you yes. saying capitalism is savage? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
10: So, in some parts of the state, like Madison-Dane County, I mean, we just got 2020 census numbers, and they show that Madison-Dane County grew by about 15% over the last decade. So you would expect, unless there's a huge building boom, you would expect that that places like Madison-Dane County would have a hard time keeping up with that housing demand. But when we look elsewhere in the state, and I find it fascinating, Andy, that you talked about places like Green Bay and Appleton showing such significant housing price increases. When we look in other parts of the state, most of the state is either flat or declining in population. So what do you attribute to these rising rents in these places where those populations are not growing?
9: I think it's a huge mix of factors. There's that lovely uh, quality of human nature called avarice. But there is also a dynamic where uh, incomes in this state are incredibly low and there's a sheer desperation to cling to their housing. And so the power imbalance is increasingly off skew. And I think some renters are fine or some landlords are finding they can make more money and it's easier to Airbnb their places or to Jack rents because the demand is so high. What we had initially in the pandemic was many landlords, keeping their tenants, using the rent assistance coming their way and switching to -to month-to-month leases. What a month-to-month lease allows is in 30 days you can terminate the lease or increase rents to make a place increasingly unaffordable. So I, I don't know the underlying psychodrama and places where population is declining, but the reality is if the roof is not the roof over your head is not going to be there tomorrow. That uncertainty maximizes stress, trauma, and impacts children and others in horrific ways.
10: Well, let's turn to the Wisconsin Emergency Rental Assistance Program. How many people have participated in that program to date?
9: Just under 75,000 people in about 25,000 households. And do you feel that Oh, oh wait a second. That's in 60 the 68 counties where we're doing it. The four largest counties are running their own programs. So, we've put out about 110 million dollars in those counties then the four big counties, Waukesha, Brown, Dane, and Milwaukee have put out another 90, 95 million and tens of thousands of other people. So we're probably well over 125,000 people and, you know, 60,000 households. I don't have good numbers for the, those separate areas, which, for whatever reason, are weirdly called entitlement areas.
10: So do you think that the Emergency Rental Assistance Program met its federal objectives in terms of keeping people in their homes otherwise who otherwise would have been evicted because of the, of the pandemic?
3: Yeah, you know, Brian, I'll I'll step in for that on a second. Uh, and th- certainly that was the goal, and you started your intro talking about that very goal, you know, keeping people in our homes. That's the key, keeping them in their homes. But what the obvious concern is longer term is what happens when this, this wave ends and, and, and we haven't addressed the, the underlying affordability and supply problem. So the program is critical. As Andy laid out those numbers, you see the impact that it's had. We have uh, a couple more years where we can use those dollars to continue to stabilize families but we're not building the units that are necessary to solve this crisis longer term and that's that, that that remains the ongoing concern
10: and what would places like madison and dane county that are experiencing some very significant population growth some of the highest growth in the midwest what would these areas need to do to meet that demand
3: well so so the problem is that the the, the most severe part the, the most acute area of the crisis is that households that are 30 percent of area median income are below which is to say extremely low income that's how they're defined by HUD definition and guidance so that's where the that's where the supply problem is that it's worse and the problem has been is that the market generally hasn't reached down to, to build units at that level because the profit margins aren't there production costs etc so you've got this Significant portion of the market that there's just not enough units available. And and traditionally, at least historically, the federal government has filled that gap through public housing, through rent subsidies, through other housing on production vehicles. But there's been about a 40 year retreat from that. And now we're starting to see that what happens when the federal government pulls away from investing in that low end of the market. And then, of course, the failings of the market to to, to fill in that uh, that gap. So, places like Madison, other cities, other communities, really have a similar challenge, which is where do they identify resources to build housing at that lower level? Uh, when the federal government has retreated from that very historic role.
10: Now, there are community action agencies all across the country, and I'm sure you're in contact with some of your colleagues in other communities. Are there places in the country that seem seem to have a handle on their housing issues, or is this something that really requires a complete change from the federal level down?
3: I, well, I, Andy can weigh in as well because he talks to some of our counterparts in other states on the rental program. But I would argue, yes, we just need a fundamental mind shift in how we address housing, how we define housing, uh, who it's affordable to. Again, we've, we've spent 40 years retreating from federal investment in housing. And what, you know, we used to have public housing in a pretty, significant rate we we're not even allowed to to build new public housing at this point because of amendments in congress back in 99 and so we've just stepped away from what was always going to be the the area that needed some subsidy needed an outside participant in this case the federal government to 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 create because the market has just failed that that 30 percent or below income
10: andy are there models out there that you think are working
9: I think that in some communities, they have significantly invested in land trust and in land banking, and they're starting to work, but it's a national trend that we don't have enough affordable housing about anywhere, and it's a little easier to mask that when the weather is better year-round than when you are trying to sleep outside, uh, on a night like last night in lovely Wisconsin here. So it's scary. And the other thing we're seeing nationally is in some localities, they have added verification requirements that are making it incredibly onerous to get to the rent assistance. The one thing I'm really proud of of cap agencies in Wisconsin is we've minimized the verification and the declaration of COVID-related impact process to the lowest possible federal levels as best we can within the system. Now, in the entitlement areas, it's a little different, and the funding mechanisms go through more hoops, and sometimes the money cuts off and stops and starts. The demand is even higher, so we're seeing long turnaround times. It it feels like a powder keg. Are we so desperate that we're going to build affordable housing in the flight paths of F-35s because they can't think of any other solutions. Well, you'll get to talk about that later on the show, but it's really frightening.
10: All right. We've been speaking with Brad Paul and Andy Height from WISCAP. Thanks so much for
0: joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Thanks, Brad. And from that on to the weather... Well, the cold has eased up a little bit over the past few days, so we're now only a couple of degrees below normal for the month of February as versus the 5-degree temperature deficit that we saw through the month of January. Monday's round of Arctic air wasn't quite as uh, strong as I thought it might end up being, thanks to decent sunshine during the afternoon. And yesterday and today, we're spent uh, largely in a weak dose of warmer air that managed to Make it just far enough eastward to get into our area from under the big upper ridge that's out over the western part of the continent. And you can get a sense of that visually if you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that's linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening. That image goes back about three days or three and a half days. The north to south upper flow that's between the ridge and the trough, uh, after having kind of wafted that warmer air forward into here, has now begun ingesting just a bit more of the Arctic origin air that's up to the north and northeast of us rather than the northwest where the warmer air is. So we'll see winds continue to veer this evening and temperatures drop as that colder air starts to engulf us for another day. But the cooling will again be temporary. There's the one more set of waves lining up the cycle southward down through here on Friday and Saturday. And you can just catch a glimpse of those if you're looking at the water vapor in the form of a push of moisture in green and white that's heading inland across northern British Columbia towards about Great Slave Lake at the upper left margin of the image. That moisture, or at least what's left of it after it crosses the mountains, will be traveling southeastward with the low-pressure circulation that's still just off-screen to the north, and that will approach us across Manitoba and Minnesota tomorrow evening and overnight. The circulation center itself is going to skirt north of us a good bit across the arrowhead of Minnesota and uh, Lake Superior. But the moisture wrapping around its southern side, which will be augmented by some warm air coming off the southern plains, that will be lifted quite robustly over the denser, colder air that will be retreating northeast ahead of it through probably about a four- or five-hour wind- window tomorrow evening and overnight. So that should produce... a round of uh, fairly steady precipitation during that time period. A few factors are going to mitigate against seeing terribly much snow out of this uh, episode. One will simply be how fast the system is moving, and another will be that we'll only get the warm air advection snows on the lead side of the circulation, since the circulation itself is going to pass to our north. Another factor will be related to the warm air advection itself that's going to be producing the snow, It will produce a denser snow than we might otherwise see, since it will be warming up. And that's going to be especially true later in the night when a southwesterly low-level jet just a few thousand feet above ground level ramps up to maybe 60 or 70 miles per hour and starts to produce a quite rapid warming up above us. That'll push the temperatures up there above freezing by the time we get to midnight or after. So that'll produce a wet snow for sure and probably some freezing drizzle as the upper part of the air column starts to dry out in the wee hours of Friday and we shorten the saturated depth. So a heavy slightly crusty inch or two of snow is what I'm expecting to see by the time we get up on Friday morning. We'll stay somewhat warmish through the day Friday as the storm passes east uh, to our north. Before an Arctic air mass starts to get entrained behind it, which will produce a veering wind shift uh, to the north in the late hours of the day and an abrupt temperature drop then as we get into the overnight and going into Saturday. Saturday will stay quite cold and breezy, especially breezy in the morning hours with modest temperature recovery back towards about 20 degrees or so as we get into Sunday. But back to tonight, uh, the spotty flurries that are around the area in various places will end through the coming hour or two. Those skies are likely to stay cloudy through the balance of the night. Temperatures will descend to the upper teens on northwesterly winds up at 8 to 15 miles per hour overnight. Tomorrow we may see some breaking or clearing of the cloud cover in the morning hours, but high clouds should begin to come in from the west through the afternoon hours, thickening and lowering then enough by evening to... Begin a steady snow by, uh, say, 7 or 8 p.m., at least the way the current modeling is looking. Snow may be uh, quite enthusiastic for a time and will last uh, into the wee hours of Friday before passing east out of the area. Northern areas may pick up uh, maybe a couple inches of this heavy snow, Uh, southern areas less than that. Temperatures will reach the upper 20s tomorrow during the day, then rise through the overnight hours up to probably the mid-30s by Friday morning. Southwesterly winds will increase uh, Friday afternoon and remain up in the 12 to 20 mile per hour range overnight, veering west by morning. We'll stay breezy and mildish on Friday. That was, southwesterly winds will be up... Uh, Tomorrow afternoon into Friday. We'll stay breezy and mildish Friday as the storm passes east, with temperatures holding in the mid 30s with some lifting of the cloud cover until a veering wind shift uh, to the northwest in the afternoon starts temperatures plummeting into the 20s by sundown and then down probably to the upper single digits by Saturday morning. North and northwest winds will solely come down to 8 to 12 miles per hour by morning. And Saturday will stay cold and mostly clear, I think, with high temperatures in the low to mid-teens on lighter northwesterly winds. Cause may increase some with another uh, much weaker passing system overnight into Sunday with a low temperature down in the single digits. And temperatures may recover to about 20 on Sunday. We should be warmer by about the middle of next week. The temperature is down here on Bedford Street at the radio station is 32 degrees. The DuPont temperature is 28. Uh, We're overcast at about 2,700 feet. The winds are out of the west at 9 miles per hour. The barometer is rising steadily at 29.70 inches of mercury. And the time is now 6.49, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. And finally this evening, we go to February 1964 when fair housing was a political hot potato, young lovers caused big trouble, and a powerful industrialist passed away. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 58 years ago this month on tonight's edition of Madison in the 60s. (music)
4: They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, February 1964. Civil rights is the central issue in Southside Alderman Harold Babe Rohr's spring campaign for his fourth term, as challenger Clifford Roberts campaigns explicitly on Rohr's opposition to the New Equal Opportunities Ordinance, Rohr flings the issue back in a campaign flyer attacking Roberts, announcer for the Capital Times' WIBA radio station, as, quote, a self-avowed member of the NAACP who, quote, has taken part in NAACP sit-in demonstrations. Rohr explains his opposition to fair housing at a meeting this month of the South Madison Neighborhood Council. What would you say if the city passed an ordinance that you would have to rent or sell to every Jew that came to your door? He asks a group of black landlords. Roar even brings race into the basic administration of the election itself when he gets the council to reject the official list of Democratic Party poll watchers because two of them were black, including EOC member the Reverend James C. Wright, in favor of his personal all-white slate. It's only when city attorney Edwin Conrad calls the action illegal that the council confirms the city's first two black election officials. While Roar is still fighting equal opportunity, council candidate Robert Toby Reynolds puts his political future at risk, fighting for it. In a tight University Heights primary race to succeed Alder Ethel Brown, Toby Reynolds, liberal attorney no relation to Mayor Henry Reynolds, formally repudiates the very valuable endorsement from the AFL-CIO's Committee on Public Education, COPE, because the labor group also endorsed Rohr and fellow EOC foe Alder Ellsworth Swenson. I am sorry that the Madison AFL-CIO has permitted its image to be damaged by endorsements of this kind, Reynolds Telegram's Federation of Labor Executive Director Marv Brixen, but my beliefs do not permit me to accept an endorsement that goes to candidates for aldermen with this record. The Madison labor movement is in a bind. As Reynolds and the Madison Federation of Teachers point out, the National AFL CIO supports the civil rights bill pending in Congress. But Rohr is the powerful business agent for the Painters Union and president of the Building Trades Council. So the labor group reaffirms its endorsement of Reynolds, but rejects a resolution supporting the just-enacted ordinance. Rohr and Reynolds both win their races. And the brand-new Equal Opportunities Commission adopts some very casual rules of procedure, which allow a complainant to contact any of the commissioners, in person or in writing, to allege a violation of the new ordinance. If the intake commissioner or the cases committee can't solve the conflict, it will then go to the commission for further mediation. Although it was the fair housing provisions in the new ordinance that caused the controversy, the EOC may soon have to address issues over employment, as the State Industrial Commission releases a survey showing that the 10 largest firms in Madison have a payroll of 8,739 but employ only 48 blacks. Among the employers with no non-whites among their 1,400 workers, American Family Insurance, Madison Gas and Electric, Madison Kip, and Ohio Medical. And the concern for civil rights filters down to the younger set, as about 100 Madison and suburban high school students participate in the first Youth Rally for Human Rights, sponsored by the EOC and the Madison Youth Council. Among the speakers at the event held at St. John's Lutheran Church on East Washington Avenue, Judge Richard Bardwell, Mayor Reynolds, and Youth Council Vice President, Eugene Parks. But not all youth have brotherly love on their minds, as high school gangs rumble all over town over teenage romance. It starts January 31st, when an Edgewood high school girl entices the Verona boy she's dating and four of his friends into an ambush at Peppermint Park, the carnival area on the far west side where they are severely beaten with clubs and rubber hoses by the West High School boy she's also dating and 15 of his friends. A rematch rumble in a Verona gravel pit is set for the next weekend, but police get an anonymous tip and sheriff's deputies arrest the ringleaders. Another girl with two suitors becomes a catalyst that week in the 2400 block of East Washington Avenue, where 11 pupils from East La Follette and Monona Grove High School battle with fists, clubs, and switchblades. Madison police also confiscate three switchblade knives from students at Central and West after a knife fight between young teens at West, also fighting over a girl. All in all, Madison police and county deputies contact the parents of 35 students involved in the fights. These knuckleheads notwithstanding, it appears that our children are indeed smarter than those in other cities, at least as measured by new IQ tests. They show our average fifth grader has an IQ 14 points higher than the national average, making them intellectually comparable to sixth graders in most other cities. There is intellectual activity on the UW campus as the fifth annual Wisconsin Student Association Student Symposium Series, this year entitled Dissent, features Senator Gaylord Nelson, African-American author Louis Lomax, and public intellectual Dwight McDonald, who criticizes the WSA for inviting, in his words, a racist bigot demagogue, the spokesman for the crackpot right-wing group, and a communist namely Governor George C. Wallace, Congressman and John Burt Society Executive John Russelo, and historian Herbert Aptheker. The great naturalist and spiritual founder of the National Parks, John Muir, has enough connection to the campus that the public unveiling of the commemorative three-cent postage stamp being issued in his honor is held at the Historical Society building. But because he only attended the university for two years of irregular study— The formal first day ceremonies will be in April in Martinez, California, where Muir died in 1914. And a more recent death to note, Thomas Coleman, 70, widely respected both as president of Madison Kipp since 1927 and as a powerful state and national Republican leader for three decades, dies of cancer on February 4th. His son, J. Reed Coleman, is expected to be named as his successor. He'll have a big issue to decide whether to keep the plant at its east side location. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that
0: does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter today is Layla Ma. Welcome to the show, Layla. We're happy to have you on. Your headline writer was David Aaron. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan, Stu Levitan and the Monday 8 o'clock buzz. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. You could join Layla as a volunteer reporter on the station. Get in touch with Sholly at the station during regular business hours. If you're interested, stay up-to-date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay tuned next for the live edition of Query, followed by this way out at 7.30. And we'll be back in your ears tomorrow night at 6 with tomorrow's news. Until then, good night.